Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I first met Josh Bell junior year of high school. When I first saw him, I thought this is the type of lad I could either punch in the face or copy his homework from. I chose the latter. <laughs> I uh, I knew that that was coming. And um, although to be fair, that, that kind of sounds like your James Lipton impression a little bit. But um, hey, Josh, we'll take it. What if uh, yeah. what if Morgan Freeman was on Inside the Actors Studio, which he has been before? Mm-hmm. Tell us about the Shawshank Redemption. Well, James. Wait, am I you or are you me? <laughs> yeah, this is good question. This is some elaborate, some elaborate stuff going on here. So, wh- where are we? What are we doing? Uh, we're at the season finale of our special retrospective season, our tenth season, where we've been looking back at all of the awesome movie years that we've covered in previous seasons. We've taken a look at each of those years and added one more movie to them. And uh, for our final episode this season, as we always do, we did an audience choice poll and we asked you, the audience, which of those years you wanted to hear about one more time. And there were a lot of choices. And so the votes were very spread out. But the eventual winner was 1994, which is the year that we talked about in our very first season and which we revisited earlier this season with Dave's pick, The Crow. And so we decided for 1994 as your pick that we would talk about a movie that in the initial planning for that season, we considered very heavily and is one of the most beloved movies, not only of 1994, but of all time. And that, of course, is the James Lipton starring (laughs) The Shawshank Redemption. You know, Josh, this uh, came down when we first planned it. This was neck and neck with my pick. This was going to be my pick for 1994, but you know, as beloved as this film is, certain things just can't edge out Cabin Boy. I mean, I'm glad that we talked about Cabin Boy and I'm glad that we're now talking about the Shawshank Redemption, which is by some measures the greatest film ever made. Still ranked number one on the IMDb 250 user generated Best movies ever. It's been there since 2008. So that's pretty impressive, man. Yeah. I mean, we'll get into all the details about this film, but just the, the, the way that it's built up that kind of a reputation is, is kind of amazing and is a product of all sorts of weird factors that I'm sure we'll talk about. But it started with this movie being a failure. It was released... Uh, opposite uh, Pulp Fiction, which was a huge sensation. And uh, Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. And I mean, as we talked about way back when we did this season, 1994, a powerhouse year of major films. And there's there's a various uh, reasons why people claim that this happened. But the the ultimate result is that in its initial theatrical run in the United States, this movie made only $16 million on its budget of $25 million. What a loser. Was, was a total, mm. a total flop. Um, but fairly soon after that, it started its own redemption ah. um, by, uh, by being nominated for seven Oscars, 
including Best Picture, Best Actor for not James Lipton, but Morgan Freeman, uh, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Editing, Best Sound, and Best Original Score. It won zero of those awards, but at least in part because it was so heavily featured in the uh, broadcast of the Oscars, it got a re-release in theaters where it made a bit more money. Ultimately, including worldwide, it grossed $73.3 million, which is, you know, not a bad number. And over time, between home video releases and airings on cable, it became ubiquitous to the point where I think a lot of people, if you tell them this movie was a failure when it was first released, they wouldn't believe you. Yeah, Josh, like you said, those Oscars, it's interesting because now I don't think those nominations propel. I mean, obviously we're in a different way of watching now, but they don't propel movies like they used to. Right. And in 94, we said, what kind of swallowed this up? You had those movies, you had the lion King and we could argue that this should have won a few. Obviously I, I think when we talked about it, we said this was the best movie of the pack of that year, but yeah, I mean, look, TNT, I think for the late nineties used to run basketball WCW Monday Nitro and Shawshank Redemption. And that was all they ran. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that's that's only a slight exaggeration, I think, uh, given the amount of times that that movie was aired on TNT, um, as well as I think some other cable networks and then the home video success of it as well. So, I mean, that's kind of the legacy, but it's also kind of not because it was it was almost immediate. You know, the movie failed at the box office and it didn't take five, 10, whatever years for people to start appreciating it. Like some of these movies that we talk about as cult classics or as flops, it happened basically within the same year uh, or within a year right. when those when those Oscars came. And, and we mentioned I, like Born Identity, how that like was not a hit, um, you know, in the theaters and then right away caught fire on video. This one is a little more interesting because we've talked about like office space in the past and how cable TV really kind of uh, jettied that. And then this is kind of that combination of both. Like you said, this is running like 15 different cable networks. Obviously, TNT wouldn't run it all day, every day for seven years in a row if it didn't, you know, deliver in the ratings. But it wasn't just them. I think it was like either like, Lifetime or Oprah wanted like, you know, a, a network specifically uh, at that point, you know, targeting women. And this movie really has no women characters. And it was a huge hit there, too. Right. And I mean, that's one of its potential flaws, you could argue, is that it's its lack of, of women characters. But it's not hard to see how this movie that, while it may not have female characters, uh, is very open hearted and emotional. Um, and uplifting would fit in with the programming on uh, on those women focused. Uh, and I, I also have to say that's such a ridiculous argument. Men can't enjoy movies that are specifically about women and women can't enjoy movies that are specifically about men. What a silly argument, right? No, no, that's not what I, that's the opposite of what I'm saying. I'm saying that women can no, enjoy I, and do I, enjoy this. Movie. I know you're saying that, but I'm saying it was a surprise hit because that was one of the arguments of why it was a flop. Well, women had no no one to relate to in this movie. Like they can't just enjoy a good movie for what it is. Right, right. That's true. I mean, you could argue that uh, the lack of any female characters is a is a potential flaw of, of any film. Um, but you're also absolutely right that there's no reason why uh, female audiences or any kind of audience can't identify with the characters in this film. And that's one of the reasons why it's so successful is that it can appeal to such a wide range of people and they can all 
identify with it and feel uplifted by it. I'm going to disagree. I don't, I can't argue that this is a flaw because there is no place where it would make sense to put a large female role in this one. Right. It just like, um, there are certain movies we love that are female dominated and I don't say, Oh, I wish a man was in this. If it makes sense, it makes sense. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, if you want to argue that where could you put a female role, I mean, you could have given Andy Dufresne's wife a single line, considering that her death is the catalyst for this entire story. But I don't think that that's necessary. Um, And I think to criticize this one movie saying this movie needed more female characters is not necessarily correct. Um, But, you know, it could be emblematic of a larger need for female characters and this is a separate argument here. yeah your but argument think, is one line would have really brought in that honed in that woman audience no <laughs> no but i think i think the fact that that character literally never speaks does sort of speak to the lack of consideration for women in this film i don't necessarily think that that's a flaw i just think that that is something that you could argue here and people have argued and i don't think it's entirely invalid well i think people are idiots and you're a person so you're an idiot all right let's move on from that then (laughs) um frank darabont who wrote and directed this film as his, uh, well, his theatrical debut feature film, he had directed a, uh, a TV film before this, had quite the history with Stephen King, who is the uh, author on whose novel or novella this is based. He, in 1983, Frank Darabont had made a short film called The Woman in the Room, based on a Stephen King short story. Part of this cool thing that Stephen King does that he calls Dollar Babies, where he allows uh, film students and sort of amateur filmmakers to buy the rights to his short stories for just a dollar so that they can make films. And generally those films have to be non-commercial. They can play at film festivals and at, you know, uh, colleges and universities. But still it gives these these filmmakers kind of a, a chance to showcase their talents with a Stephen King story. And so Frank Darabont did that in 1983. And that kind of created this long lasting bond between him and Stephen King. I love that so much that Stephen King does this. And, you know, when we talk about like great, I don't want to say mentors, but like um, kind of like uh, inspirers, which is not a word of the film industry, but people (laughs) like who are really helping younger people get their starts. Stephen King does not get enough credit for doing what he does. Like, what a super cool thing to do for filmmakers. And I know, Josh, you said you know someone in Vegas who's literally doing this right now. Yeah, I someone that I don't really know personally, but, you know, follow on social media. Uh, Julia Mar- Marchese or Marchese, I'm going to mispronounce Probably her Marchese. But Marchese could be. There you go. Sorry, Julia, if you ever listen to this. Um, but yeah, she's a filmmaker from Vegas uh, who lives in L.A. right now. Um, and she was working on a dollar baby short film, I believe is in like post-production on it now for the story. I know what you need. She was crowdfunding it and she shot it. Uh, I can't, I'm sure I read it a long time ago. It takes place, I think at the university of Maine where Stephen King went as a, as a student and she shot it at, on the campus there. Um, so yeah, it's something that he still does. And for, for filmmakers, uh, you know, across the spectrum or whatever. So that is, it is very cool. And it's not just, he kind of gives those rights and then forgets about it. At least in the case of Frank Darabont here, 
he appreciated Frank's Darabont's film of the woman in the room and Darabont was able to buy the rights just himself uh, before being a big successful filmmaker buy the rights to uh, Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption, which is the name of the novella in 1987 uh, for just $5,000, which another kind of uh, mythical story here that, that Stephen King says he never cashed that check and, you know, has it framed now. He gave it back to Darabont actually and said, if you ever need rent money, if things aren't going well. Oh, there you go. Maybe it's Darabont who has it framed. But uh, I mean, obviously Stephen King doesn't need $5,000, but. <laughs> Neither does Frank Darabont. Mm-hmm. Well, but no, but in 1987, that was probably a not it. insignificant amount of money for Frank. If he wants to sign it over was... to me, I'll take it. All right. Um, <laughs> and uh, and the novella is from Stephen King's collection, Different Seasons from 1982, which is quite an impressive. It's four, four novellas, three of which have been made into extremely successful films. This, uh, as well as Rob Reiner's Stand By Me and Brian Singer's Apt Pupil. Uh, and the fourth one is in development as a film. So um, not that Stephen King has any lack of uh, stuff being adapted into successful movies and TV series, but still for something with four stories in it, that's a pretty impressive track. Record. Yeah, a few things to jump on there, Josh. One, Rob Reiner, the official director of Awesome Movie Year, um, obviously executive producer here, wanted to direct this. And they offered Darabon a ton of money, like two to three million dollars to like just let Reiner direct it. And Darabont kept to his, you know, stuck to his gun, so to speak, and said, I want to direct it. And uh, Reiner, to his credit, got this guy $25 million to make the movie his way and like really just help mentor him. And that is why Rob Reiner is one of the many reasons he's the official director of Awesome Movie Year. We love him here. Josh, um, Stand By Me, that's a good movie. I like that one. Yeah, so, I, I did too. Yeah, you... Um, the last thing I wanted to say is um, another thing with the initial theatrical run is when they advertise the Shawshank Redemption, they, the studios in their uh, infinite wisdom made sure to downplay Stephen King's involvement or that it was based on his material because they didn't want audiences to get confused that this would be a horror movie instead of just saying, hey, you know what's successful? Stephen King movies. Maybe we'll put his name on this. Right. And of course... Stand By Me, which is a Stephen King non-horror movie, had been a huge success in, I mean, sometime in the 80s. I forget what year exactly that is, but certainly before this. I feel like 86, 87, right in that. Yeah, but either way, they could have easily said, hey, remember Stand By Me? You know, here's another movie. I mean, they are in a very similar vein. You know, they have a lot of tonal similarities, so they could have done that. And there's all sorts of of speculation about why this didn't fail. Oh, the, the, you know, the title was confusing or uh, there was one negative review in the LA times that somehow tanked this entire film. I mean, at this point it's sort of irrelevant because the film has become like so a billion dollars. Yeah. <laughs> right. Value asset. It was uh, stand by me was 86. Again, this is why you want me on your bar trivia team. And Josh, I will say, I remember in 94 when this came out and I would see commercials I was a, a young teenager then, but I was like the Shawshank Redemption. I did the title definitely did not make me want to see it. I didn't understand what that meant. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's fair. Um, and they could have changed. I mean, they already changed it from the the longer title of the novella. Um, I'm sure there's some memo somewhere that you know you see those 
things pop up on online sometimes about some studio executives suggestions for alternate titles to like, you know, Star Wars or whatever and how terrible those ideas are. Maybe there was a title that would have been more bland, but clearer to audiences, you know, prison friends or something like that. I don't know. I mean, most people just call it Shawshank now. Right. So. Right. But I mean, it is an accurate title for what the movie is about. So yes, it takes place at Shawshank and the character gets redemption. Both of the characters, both the main characters. And that's Um, all for this week's awesome movie year. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) So you, you mentioned, you know, seeing the ads at the time. Did you see this movie when it came out? No, my grand, I remember my grandfather told me what a wonderful film it was. It just seemed you know, again, we're talking 94 with that glut of just uh, really, really just amazing movies and not just amazing movies, movies that caught that zeitgeist, right? So this one kind of caught it a little later. I must have seen it on video for the first time, like many of us did. This was one of the highest selling videos and renting videos of 95. I saw it shortly thereafter and uh, loved it. Yeah, I was trying to remember if I had seen it in theaters because I was definitely a huge, huge Stephen King fan. And I was looking on my bookshelf. I have different seasons, the book, uh, with with a, a Shawshank Redemption cover with like a picture of Tim Robbins on the cover and the like now a major motion picture. So obviously I got the book somewhere around there. And I, it's possible that I bought the book and read it specifically before seeing the movie because I wanted to do that, but I don't remember for sure. So I may have seen it in the theater. I may have seen it right when it came on home video, but I certainly was more eager to see it, I think, than you were because I was already familiar with either familiar with the story or the idea of, you know, Stephen King stories that weren't horror and stuff like that. So I was definitely more uh, more enthused to see it. What did you think of the story? Uh, I mean, I liked it, I think, but it's been so long. I mean, I definitely read it if not before seeing the movie right around the same time and have not since. I mean, I thought, oh, maybe I'll read it again. But, you know, that's that's more time than I'm able to devote. To I think you should character. read it to Dave because Dave doesn't read. <laughs> that's true. I'll record an audiobook of it for Dave. We'll just that do well, it after we finish That's nice. Podcast. I pictured Dave on your lap and you reading him and, you know, giving him a baba. But whatever, however you want to do it is fine with me. I don't know what kind of weird fantasies you're having there, Jason. I mean, let's let's. Why does Dave have a diaper if we're not going to do this? <laughs> Dave, did you see this movie when it came out? Goo goo gaga. I'm pretty sure I saw it in the theater with my dad. I, I have a memory of that. I don't remember how I liked it at the time, but it was an early favorite movie of mine at the, you know, in my teens. So I'm sure I must have liked it right away. You know, I just want to, before you get to the reviews, Josh, I want to say one thing because Dave saw it with his dad. My grandfather told me about it. There was some poll um, that was done, uh, like in Britain, where they like looked at these lists of greatest movies and who was choosing them. And, you know, something like Pulp Fiction would be chosen by like a younger generation, right? Whereas The Godfather would be chosen by like an older generation. Shawshank was chosen by like every demographic, every, you know, kind of ethnicity, both sexes, you know, however you identify. Like this is a universally beloved film. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that goes to what I was saying before is that it, it, the part of the reason that it achieved that success or it was able to succeed on TNT and on Lifetime and on home videos because it 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 has that ridiculously broad appeal um, that 
so many different kinds of people can watch this movie and feel uplifted by it, identify with it, be entertained by it. And that even includes curmudgeonly critics who were mostly uh, mostly positive about this film. Of course, it wasn't this juggernaut right when it came out, so they were viewing it maybe with uh, a different lens. But most critics were at least mildly positive about it. Siskel and Ebert uh, gave it two thumbs up. Siskel especially was quite enthused uh, about it. And uh, Roger Ebert, in his review, said, The Shawshank Redemption is not a depressing story, although I may have made it sound that way. There is a lot of life and humor in it and warmth in the friendship that builds up between Andy and Red. There is even excitement and suspense, although not when we expect it. But mostly the film is an allegory about holding on to a sense of personal worth, despite everything. If the film is perhaps a little slow in its middle passages, maybe that is part of the idea too, to give us a sense of the leaden passage of time before the glory of the final redemption. Some interesting points there. I didn't find the middle uh, slow. I, you know, you could argue the episodic nature of it, but it's all just very wonderful, you know? And that act three, holy cow, does that thing deliver. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think the episodic nature of it is something that I had maybe forgotten a little bit about. And there was maybe a, a certain point in the middle where I was like, oh, okay, we got another little prison tale here before we get to the redemption. Of course, I know what's coming. Um, and one thing I was wondering, I can't remember where it was. It might've been someone on Letterboxd writing about uh, being like surprised at how the movie, you know, turns out that, you know, spoiler, I guess, if you haven't seen it, that it ends with with Andy escaping from Shawshank. What? It's amazing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. And so that's what I was thinking. Like, who doesn't know that? I mean, I certainly, and I was trying to remember like when I saw this movie, maybe it was because I had read the story first, but I feel like I never didn't know that it was about like a, a prison escape. So, but I suppose if you come to this movie not knowing anything about it, it may just seem like a story about friendship in prison. So it was weird to me to think of that as a twist, but I guess it kind of is. I didn't know what was going to happen. I remember going in just, you know, knowing that it was beloved and uh, that's it. So. But, you know, obviously this time I did know and it still holds up as like, wow, this is really a thrilling third act here. Right. No, I agree. But I just thought it was it was something that for whatever reason had not occurred to me that that someone could be unspoiled about this movie. Josh, you really got to <laughs> stop putting so much stock in these random letterbox reviews. Yeah, I guess so. But you just validated it because you said you had the same experience. Josh, you really got to stop putting so much stock in me. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so uh, Janet Maslin in the New York Times said, without a single riot scene or horrific effect, it tells a slow, gentle story of camaraderie and growth with an ending that abruptly finds poetic justice in what has come before. The writer and director, Frank Darabont, tells this tale with a surprising degree of loving care. There are times when the Shawshank Redemption comes dangerously close to sounding one of those triumph of the human spirit notes, but most of it is eloquently restrained. Despite an excess of voiceover narration and inspirational music, Mr. Darabont's film has a genuine dignity that holds the interest. So yes, there is a lot of narration, um, but who better? I mean, this was the movie that probably made Morgan Freeman as a narrator, like a ubiquitous, all encompassing thing, right? Where every movie did it. I actually used to do a joke 
Um, and it's not going to be very good, which is why I don't do it anymore. But like, I, I, I said, like, I wonder has Morgan Freeman narrated so many movies that now he like narrates his own life. Like he has an inner monologue in the morning, you know, woke up, had my toast warm and buttery in the middle, whatever. Anyway. So I don't do that joke anymore, (laughs) but Josh laughed, Dave, you're not invited to any of my shows anymore. Um, I'm giggling. No, but, uh, so the other thing about that was, uh, the sentimentality. I admit like, man, I was watching and I'm like, "Eh." there were times where they pulled a little hard on the heartstrings. And, you know, I was like, "Eh, maybe it's not as good as I remember, but it all, comes together that son of a bitch they really did it yeah i mean you can definitely feel the sentimentality and that's something that i just you know for me personally i tend to resist in in films but i i think it is really mostly effective there are moments when yeah it feels like it's a little much or the music swells a little much i mean the music is great it just is really working very hard um but i think overall it does pay off. And maybe part of it is because of those slow middle scenes that we were talking about, that it takes the time to build that. And so you're not feeling manipulated as much because you really understand and believe that friendship between Andy and Red and the the sense of hope and determination that Andy has had over these long you know, decades that he spent in Shawshank Prison. And not just that, I think Darabont, some of his strongest work is that character development. So you see this character change, but you also see that Andy Dufresne is kind of a meticulous thinker who has thought out things, you know, uh, well in advance. So when you get that final sequence, like it all is earned at that point in time. Right. Yeah. I think that's what I'm saying is that it doesn't feel like it's cheap. It doesn't feel like he's he's played unfair with the audience. And so even critics who were kind of reluctant, maybe who similarly resist that sentiment, seemed to reluctantly embrace this film. Uh, Owen Gleiberman in Entertainment Weekly said, the movie is about survival, triumph and a thing called hope. It's about a hero who rises above the squalor because he's blessed, a saint in the muck. It's Midnight Express goes gump. You need a certain craftsmanship to traffic in twin brands of manipulation, the exploitative and the sentimental. And there's no denying that Frank Darabont knows just what he's doing. The moss-dark, saturated images have a redolent sensuality. You feel as if you could reach out and touch the prison walls. And Darabont is an accomplished button pusher. He coaches the actors so that you always know exactly who to root for and against. And certainly the villains in this this movie are quite uh villains. Dastardly. <laughs> yes. Nefarious. Exactly. The all of Bastards. those all of those synonyms. You know, Darabon pushing these buttons, you probably read the same type of thing that I read about how there was a lot of clashes between Darabon and his actors and he made him do all these takes but he was never very clear why they had to do all these takes if they were so similar and we know Darabont moving forward has a reputation of maybe not being the easiest person to work for. Right. So, um, but uh, it's interesting because like, if this is, if the results are like this, then yeah, this is, then you, you put up with that. Right. Right. I mean, it's interesting to read about things like that, where maybe as they were making the movie, they didn't realize how it was all going to work out, certainly, or even that it was going to turn out well, or they were frustrated with the process. But yeah, I mean, you can't argue with the end result. And, and I think 
uh, Darabont may be exacting and difficult, but it wasn't that he was uh, abusive or, or uh, you know, created unsafe working mm. conditions or anything like that. No, I mean, like, you know, Fincher has that reputation for like, we're going to do 80 takes or Kubrick, right? But I think part of it was, uh, from what I read, it seemed like there was a lack of communication. Why are we doing this takeover the exact same way if we already got it? For instance, there's the scene where, you know, uh, Red is tossing the baseball back and forth. And they said they did so many takes of that, that uh, that Morgan Freeman came onto the set the next day with his arm in a sling. Yeah, I mean, and, and part of it may be that this was Darabont's, uh, you know, essentially his, his first, first feature. Right. First feature. Right. First uh, feature. First theatrical feature. Is that what you're trying to say uh, there, Josh? First feature? Well, Lemon no, face, no, lion no. face, lemon face, lion face. <laughs> Uh, it's not his first feature. It's his first theatrical feature is what I mean to say. But still, he didn't have as much experience necessarily and certainly had a lot of expectations, whether he was working with a bigger budget or wanting to do justice to this Stephen King story that obviously meant a lot to him and maybe, um, you know, went a little harder than he should have. Um, that's certainly possible. Sally sells seashells by the seashore. Thank you, Jason. It's a tongue twisters for the audience there. We can move on from that. Um, anything else you want to mention about the uh, background of this film, Jason? Um, I think we covered a lot. I mean, obviously, we're going to get into some of, you know, we mentioned Thomas Newman, which we'll let Dave kind of get into, um, you know, the music. And we've talked about Thomas Newman before. Also had two Golden Globe nominations for screenplay and for Morgan Freeman, I think. And the last thing I wanted to mention there, Josh, was Roger Deakins, who we'll talk about because the cinematography, man, is something to behold in this one. Yeah, and I guess Tim Robbins is the one to thank for that because he had worked with Deakins on the Hudsucker Proxy and uh, had him brought in. Uh, when he was recruited to uh, to star in this film. So uh, way to go, Tim Robbins, because you are right. Part of that was, hey, if you're an inexperienced director, let's get you a masterful director of photography. And that is always a good idea. So we will come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on The Shawshank Redemption. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this season finale of our special retrospective season, we are talking about our audience choice winner from 1994, Frank Darabont's The Shawshank Redemption. And, and is is so beloved. This is one of those movies, like when we talked about, you know, Star Wars or something like that, where it, it almost feels like, what can we say about it that hasn't been said a million times or that people haven't discussed a million times? But it is a really, really successful movie. And I think even having seen it multiple times, although I think the last time I saw it was like 10 years ago, um, you can still appreciate it anew each time you watch it. And, and like we were talking about earlier, even if you know where the plot is going and it's not a surprise that Andy escapes from Shawshank Prison, the way that it's constructed is, is so impressive. And I did forget certain things, like, I mean, not to skip ahead to the third act, but um, we see early in the film, Andy gets the rock hammer, this little hammer that he uses for carving rocks that he makes into little sculptures, and he's making a chess set. And he starts carving his name into the wall of his cell. And early in the film, we just see him start making like a, the first letter and 
you assume, okay, he carved his name. And I didn't even think anything about that. And then later on, we come back to that and we see that was the moment when he realized he could use that hammer to chip away at the wall. And I was like, oh, right, that it was it. I forgot about it, even though I'd seen the movie multiple times. So I think that's a real credit to Darabont's and Stephen King's level of craftsmanship, because so much of this is taken directly from the story. Yeah. You know, to go along with that, Josh, um, the character of Brooks played magnificently by James Whitmore. Like, I really like that character this time. And his acting was just, uh, man, he is so good with his facial expressions, you know, when he's talking to Jake, his bird and everything like just what I mean, he's so good in this. Uh, like, I know he's a classic actor, but like, I want to go back and watch other stuff with him. Right. Which is the highest compliment you can give him. But Brooks gets out. He goes into this halfway house. Obviously, again, spoiler alert, if you never had TNT, you know, um, he can't make it on the outside, which I really think was an interesting subplot. This kind of idea of like he's been institutionalized. He's uh, he belongs on the inside. He doesn't know how to survive out there. Right. And he ends up hanging himself. But he writes Brooks was here in the in the uh, ceiling. And then you see like kind of a mirrored sequence after Red gets out and uh, he stands on that same desk and writes, so was Red. And you see that. But of course, Red doesn't kill himself. He goes the other direction. So um, just just really good stuff like that. Really well constructed, like you said, uh, from, uh, I think, a structural standpoint and a character standpoint. Yeah, totally. And I what struck me, too, watching that that whole sequence with Brooks is that it fits with the larger narrative of the film, the idea of being institutionalized and how how prison breaks these people. And, you know, not only being in prison breaks them, but then it makes them incapable of being out of prison. It ruins them both ways. And that's that's very thematically relevant. But what struck me, too, is that you could take you could basically take that Brooks sequence out of the film and play it as it as its own short film. And it would work perfectly. You'd understand exactly what was going on, exactly why these things are happening. And it creates this full character arc just within those, you know, five to 10 minutes or whatever that it takes for that sequence. So um, that is, is, is really beautiful. And, it, and it, it makes you appreciate that, like, maybe the episodic nature of the film is the way to go when it has these wonderful episodes. I, I think that's it, is that each thing is really, really unique and has its own payoff. The Tommy sequence, all that stuff. Um, but yeah, you know, Josh, that's interesting because you're right. Like that Brooks thing, you get the whole story there. And I thought that was one of the more interesting subplots. The idea of um, and I know Eber talked about it is like you're worth even when the rest of society feels you're worthless. Right. Like they have a worth in prison. Right. And, you know, he didn't want to get out and was willing to commit. You know, he seems like this lovely man but he's willing to commit more crimes just to stay in prison where he's the librarian and people respect him and he has a value. Whereas on the outside, he just doesn't know how to even fit into society anymore. There's no rehabilitation, but more than that, there's no value to what he's doing out there. Right. I think that that is the thing that's heartbreaking is that like, not only is being in prison terrible, but being out of prison is terrible because you've been in prison and that, Prison just ruins everything for these people, no matter what. And when I'm talking about these characters and we're talking about these villains who are real bastards, they're not like over the top bastards, though, right? They're these really subdued, like horrible people. But at the same time, like 
you know, um, the main guard uh, to protect Andy because Andy's been helping him and the other guards with all their financial stuff just beats Boggs into paralyzation, which we're rooting for at that point, you know? Right, right. And we're rooting for it. But I think hopefully we also understand that it's horrible that we're rooting for it, that this is this is what happens in prison, is that even, you know, our sympathetic character, Andy, in order for him to be protected, the guards are beating this guy who is, right, is also is terrible. Boggs, he's a, a rapist. And, uh, you know, is constantly assaulting people and is a leader of this horrible gang. Um, but, you know, the fact that the guards beat him to the point of being paralyzed is also not good as a sign of this horrible amount of power that these guards have. So, you know, as 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 cuddly as this movie can be, as inspirational and uplifting as it is, and as much as it is in some ways sort of a fantasy of what prison life would be, it doesn't hold back from showing you the just inherent horror of prison, no matter what, even in a scenario where we're kind of rooting for something, it's still horrible and it still shouldn't exist. I think you see that right from the jump when Andy gets in and they're like delousing him and spraying him with that powder and just all that stuff. And, you know, um, and then Hadley played by Clancy Brown, who's a very good character actor, right? He beats a uh, fat ass to death and, you know, no one seems to, they're just like, well, he was he was going to beat someone up, right? And I uh, just happened to be fat ass. Uh, can I tell a quick story that I always love about the character fat ass? Uh, sure. Thank you, Josh, for giving me permission. Uh, I used to love uh, Dinner for Five, John Favreau's IFC show. And he was talking about, you know, back in the day, he auditioned for the role of fat ass and he wasn't in the best shape. And he's like, well, that's an insulting name, right? So he was going to have fun with it. And uh he knew he knew what the name of the character was, but he was gonna he was gonna make. So he goes into audition and he's like, "Well, I'm gonna make the secretary call me this." So he goes in and he goes, "Hey, I'm I'm here to the uh, audition for the role of Fatus." And uh, he's just she's like, "What?" He's like, "Fatus, I'm re- re- auditioning for Fatus." And he just did that so she would be like, "Oh, you're auditioning for fat ass," you know. Fun, fun little story. Quick aside. Go on, Josh. I, it would have been interesting to see John Favreau in this film. I mean, not that there's a whole lot to that character, of course. Who is? I just- think he would have been too young for this because this is like when he was doing PCU. The guy who played him, whose name escapes me, did a did a very good job. That was a sad sequence itself, right there. Yeah, it is. It is, and even in that moment, you know, you just get a very brief. A glimpse of that guy crying and saying that you know he doesn't want to be there and he just shouldn't be there. He wants to go home and then he's dead. Um, But it it does give you a sense of that that you know we're kind of amused by the inmates placing bets on which one is going to be the first to cry and they're betting a red is betting on Andy and it's a way to show Andy's kind of stoic nature and the fact that he can actually withstand a lot even though he had this comfortable life as a banker before coming to prison but it shows that even that that sort of lighthearted they're taking bets on this has these very very dark consequences that that guy as being the first one to cry he died he was beaten to death you know it's a horrible head trauma and then they left him on the floor or whatever because the doctor had gone home for the night it's awful so I, I appreciate that that stuff is there in the film and they don't necessarily pretend that it's not. Well, Josh, in the past, you have clearly stated on the show, murder is bad. And I think this fits into that category. Thankfully, yes, this movie does not uh, deviate from that, you know, important stance <laughs> against, 
against murder. No, we're not um, we're not leaning one way or the other on politics, but Josh has a personal stance, like he said, and he has to he has to announce it. Hey Josh, I gotta ask you a question. You have read this yeah. story, and in the story, and we we've given Darabont credit, not just as a director, as a writer, but you know, we mentioned Brooks in the story, he ends up in a retirement home, and Tommy, the young guy, trades that information to go to a better prison. And of course, he's murdered here, which is a really effective sequence to show what a horrible human the warden is. Um, did you remember any of that moving from the book to the movie? And because I think it's so effective in the movie, I wonder if those changes were as effective in the original story. I mean, I like I said, it was so long ago that I don't remember uh, those specifics from the story. I mean, I read recently that those were changes that were made. Um, to me, I, watching the movie this time, I didn't remember what was going to happen to Tommy. Tommy, the one who has information that could potentially exonerate Andy and get him out of prison, which the warden doesn't want because he's uh, Andy has been laundering the money for the warden. To me, as that sequence was going, and I was thinking, okay, what happens here? Does he's going to get killed? He's going to get transferred to another prison. I can't remember what happened. And you're right that having him killed shows what a horrible, horrible person that warden is. But to me, that was one of the moments here where it was like, maybe this was too much. We already understand what a horrible person this warden is. And just jumping right to murder when he does have other uh, tools at his disposal uh, seemed maybe a little excessive. And the fact is he could easily have this guy transferred to another prison. He could do all sorts of things that would thwart the efforts for Andy to get out of prison without just jumping right away to like, let's shoot this guy in the back. You know, it is an, it is an effective sequence, but it, it was one moment where I thought maybe Darabont was pressing too hard. See, I'm going to disagree with that. Although, uh, again, murder being excessive Fair, Josh. Fair. Yeah. Um, yeah. But no, I'm going to disagree because if he transfers him, he doesn't have him under his thumb anymore. We know that Tommy looks up to Andy and that he, you know, Andy's got him through high school. So I think it's this idea of total control, uh, which the warden always wants. Right. And always, um, you know, we see that he's not a good person, but we don't see the extremes he goes to until this uh point uh warden norton along with uh captain hadley who's the one who shoots him so i feel like this elevated the emotional kind of impact of the story it makes you root more for andy and makes you makes those characters obviously more villainous i mean that's true but i just feel like we were already rooting for andy the characters were already villainous this seems like you know extra icing on the cake you know a hat on a hat as they say um and it, it just seemed uh, maybe a tad unnecessary, but I don't think it's bad. And I understand why Darabont would change it. Also, you know, putting that sequence in a movie gives you this visceral movie moment yeah. that, you know, it doesn't necessarily, you know, uh, in, a, in a story, in a prose narrative, it, it, it can be more equal, um, you know, this versus the transfers, just describing it. Um, in a maybe sort of a detached way, but that moment in the movie is it, it really hits you uh, that, you know, the warden signing a form or whatever definitely would not. So I understand that. And I don't necessarily think it's bad. I just do think it was perhaps unnecessary. I actually think you make a good point. The, the first half of your point, the last part, not so much, but mm, because sure. when he's dead, right? Like they have that great shot of him and you I, props to the makeup people. You see those four clear bullet holes where the blood is, you know, in his body. And at the same time, you know, 
He's graduated. He's got a young baby at home. Like all these things that could have been are gone just because he was trying to help a friend. Right. So I think that was super effective. And obviously we just talked about the shot and I had mentioned Roger Deakins, who we know is a master, does a ton of Coen Brothers stuff. I think he finally won an Oscar for 1917, if I'm not mistaken. But you know, what's interesting is the most iconic shot in this whole film is when Andy escapes and you got that bird's eye view shot of him in the rain, like holding his arms out, experiencing freedom. And Deacon said he was more disappointed in the way he shot that sequence than anything else. Like not, you know, the things leading up to it and that, and that's just so insane. What a, what a um, perfectionist. If you can't be happy with one of the most iconic sequences ever on film, it's uh, it's an interesting thing. Right. Well, I think that goes back to the idea that the people making this film didn't realize at the time, not that they weren't trying to make the best film that they could, but you know, it's a struggle and you're frustrated. I mean, any film is like that, right? You're frustrated. You don't always get to do everything that you wanted to do. You have to make compromises and that's all you see as you're making the film. And the, the response to it is far beyond what any of these people could have envisioned. And it doesn't surprise me that as a craftsman, Deacons is still like, well, it wasn't what I wanted to do. It wasn't what I aimed for. I could have done better. But you're right that that is one of the most iconic shots in cinema. Um, and I mean, so much is iconic in this. Uh, so many of the lines, um, you know, get busy living or get busy dying, which which is a line from the original story, you know, so credit to Stephen King for that. But yeah, I mean, this is another one of those movies too, where I feel like if you haven't seen it, there's so much iconic stuff in it that's been parodied or just referenced or shown in clips or whatever that it might lose a little impact if you were coming to this movie the first time. You are correct. All that stuff about hope. And I think it's like inspired, you know, in the same way like Tony Robbins inspires people or athletes or whatnot. Um, I do have a question that my brother Max brought up, which I think is a valid question. Shout out to the bastard Max. How... When Andy escapes, we know he's carved this little tunnel with his rock hammer and he can barely fit in the tunnel. How does he get the poster back on the wall like to stay like that if he, he there's not room in him in the tunnel for him to turn around? So how does he get the poster to stick back to the wall? I guess if the poster is just stuck at the top, he can kind of lift it up like a flap and then it falls back behind him as he goes in. But it does look like it's stuck a little more uh, securely than that when they come in the cell the next day. So that is that is a possible concern, I suppose. Uh, Also, everything about that is unrealistic. So (laughs) I feel like it's okay (laughs) that that one little thing does not work out. Well, I should have told the audience that, Josh, you are a master of prison breaks. So, of course, you know what's realistic and not. Yeah, that's true. I have I have the schematics of a prison tattooed on my body. What? We should do a TV show about that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, the the one like if we're going to talk about nitpicky things, the one thing that kind of got me was, you know, we're just talking about the Tommy character uh, played by Gil Bellows, who comes in and tells Andy that he has this information that could exonerate Andy, uh, prove that he did not kill, he wasn't the one who killed his wife and her lover. And instead of saying, I'm going to call my lawyer or call a lawyer, because presumably his actual lawyer from his original trial did not do a very good job because he was convicted, he goes right to the warden 
who, yes, is someone that is sort of his ally because he's laundering the money for him. But I think even at that point, Andy has a clear understanding that the warden is a terrible person. And so that to me was like, it's necessary for the progression of the story. But I did wonder, like, where are lawyers in the whole scheme of this story? Yeah. And I mean, we know Andy is such a forward thinker, right? You would think that, but maybe he got caught up in the swoon of the emotion of him being able to get a new trial. But I think that's a fair point, Josh. Um, obviously, besides uh, Prison Breaks, you are the legal expert of the show. So, uh, Absolutely. Hey, Josh, you want some uh, alternate casting here? Why not? Dave, Let's alternate casting music, please. Hit it. Do, 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 do. Thank you, Dave. Obviously, when Rob Reiner was going to direct this, he was thinking of names like Tom Hanks, who did not do it because he did Forrest Gump. I guess that worked out all right for him. Uh, yeah, although Forrest Gump sucks. So, <laughs> oh, did, um, is that how you feel? None of us knew that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Tom Cruise did a read through of this, uh, but didn't take the part because he thought Darabont was too new. Um, this would have been a tough one for him to pull off. He's too yeah. macho, I think. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I Hanks. Hanks, I think, could have done it. But Cruise, I don't know. Kevin Costner. I can see that. Yeah. And then Johnny Depp. Nicholas Cage and Charlie Sheen were the last three. I, maybe Johnny Depp at this point in time. Yeah, maybe I guess at that time. But I feel like Tim Robbins, who is, is underrated and probably was underrated at the time too, is perfect for this role. He does a great, great job with it. And Morgan Freeman, because of all that iconic narration, is the one that people remember most and is great. I mean, absolutely 100%. But I think Tim Robbins is almost underrated because of that. And he also gives a really good performance. And a lot of that is internal because, you know, as you're talking about, Andy is so meticulous and he keeps things, uh, you know, he keeps things to himself, especially his whole plan, because it has to, you know, it surprises us as an audience, but it also can't be revealed. And and that's tough as an actor, I think, to to give a great performance that's so internal. And, yeah. and Tim Robbins really does it. Yep. Totally with you on that, Josh. As for Red, uh, Harrison Ford, what a not good pick that would have been, I think. Mm-mm. I mean, it depends on how much Harrison Ford actually tries. Andy Dufresne had- came into the prison. I said, get out of my prison! <laughs> I think he could have done all right with it in 1994. And then, of course, the heavy hitters, Gene Hackman, Robert Duvall, Clint Eastwood, Paul Newman. I mean, I can't really complain about any of those guys. They're all great, right? But but this is Morgan Freeman's most iconic role, I'd say. Yeah, it's great. And and I think, you know, in the in the story, he's very specifically referenced as like a white Irish guy. Um, but you know, casting Morgan Freeman, not only is that, hey, you, you know, we cast the best actor for the for the role, but I think there is a sort of unspoken dynamic here. The racial dynamic is something, especially because of when this yes. movie is set. And I think that adds to the story and especially because it's set in prison and the way that people are treated differently in prison. And it doesn't, you know, harp on that. I don't think Darabont rewrote anything necessarily because of Morgan Freeman being cast in the role, but just his presence there does add something. I agree. And the racial component, because of, like you said, this starts in the 40s, is important. It's it's It really is. And, you know, you kind of see how, like, when these guys are on the inside, of course, we know there's racism. And like we saw with Boggs, that's probably a white supremacist gang, right? You know, right. But yeah. um, you see that there are still people who are just 
you know, already passed all that, which is nice to see in that, in that point in time, right in 1949, you know? So. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that in part is, is, is some of the idealized depiction of prison life here. Um, but it, it also is an element of the ultimate like optimism that this movie is all about. The movie is about hope. It's about overcoming uh, whether that's being incarcerated or, racism or whatever, any circumstance that keeps you down as a person, it's about having that internal uh, drive to to overcome that and to pursue, you know, your happiness no matter what. Um, so, yeah. Is that what you're doing with your life? No, definitely not. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm busy dying. I'm not busy living. <laughs> All right. Should we rate this thing out of five Morgan Freeman narrations? That's a lot of narration, but yeah, let's do it. Or unless you want to rate it out of five uh, feces-laden uh, streams or something like that. So, let's go with the yeah. first one. Those are the only two options, so you know, let's go with the narration. I was looking for, I'm not going to say I was looking for flaws, but I love this movie so much, I came in with the mind, like, let me see what doesn't work, what does work. And that third act is so perfect to me. And the rest of it is, you know, either great, very good to great. This gets five Morgan Freeman narrations, still a five-star movie to me. All right. Um, nice. I, I think I'm, you know, as I keep saying, I'm more resistant to, to kind of sentimentality. And I looked back to the last time I watched this movie, uh, like 10 years ago, when I was doing a whole thing on Stephen King movies on my blog, and I had given it three and a half. And I feel like that's maybe a little too stingy. So I'm going to give it four Morgan Freeman narrations this time. It is a really good movie, despite my occasional resistance to it. You know, that warms my heart, Josh. And it shows personal (laughs) growth. And if I was in the same room as you right now, I'd give you such a big hug. Oh, that's sweet. So, uh, Dave, how do you want to rate this? I'm going to go with four. Uh, Although, catch me on a different day, this might be a five. It's great. It's undeniably great. Four from Dave. Screw you, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> but Dave, you were saying right, this is one of your early favorites? Oh, yeah. When I was, uh, you know, 14 or whatever, like this was definitely an, an all-timer for me. And I, I, I think it's still, it's just as good. It's just maybe not personally for me, my favorite anymore. You know? I'm not going to visit you when you end up in prison, Dave. Fair enough. <laughs> you know, there's some shady stuff going over at Rax Tracks Records. Dave, Dave is going to put a, a cure poster on the wall of his uh, <laughs> yes. cell so that he can. The boys uh, don't cry when they Yeah. Yeah. We'll come back in a moment to talk about the legacy of the Shawshank Redemption. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this season finale of our special retrospective season, we are talking about the audience choice year of 1994 and the worldwide audience choice of movie of really like ever, The Shawshank Redemption. And no, I mean, that's that's not an exaggeration. I think that's, that's, I mean, we've talked about it a lot already, but the biggest legacy of this movie is that in many, many, many people's minds, this is the best movie ever made. I love that. I mean, it's, you know, we've, we've argued and we've nitpicked and I'm totally cool with that as a selection of the best movie ever made. Yeah. I think because it's such a populist thing and, you know, as you were saying, it's number one on the IMDb, you know, user voted list, uh, since 2008 
and it's above things like The Godfather that are considered, you know, critically the greatest films ever. I think, you know, critics and 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 film geeks and people like that tend to be a bit resistant to it. Um, Dave, I think you on Letterboxd were saying something that I thought was was right that that this is often like the f- the favorite movie of people who don't really watch movies, something like yeah, that. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I also called it movie colon the movie. Um, but yeah, I, I do think though that this is a really nice pick to have as your favorite movie. If you if you don't you know pay attention to a lot of different kinds of film, like the you can't go wrong with you this. You cynical right, bastards. Think- <laughs> well, no, I think what I'm saying is that there is that knee jerk reaction amongst people like that. To say like, oh, if this is what, you know, John Q. Public loves, not John Q. Right. Public, the movie starring Denzel Washington. Ah. Um, but, you know, if this is what the average person loves, then it must be not good. But that that it is good is that, you know, we could see the number one movie on IMDb could be like Michael Bay's Transformers or something like that that was hugely popular. Um, but instead, it's this movie that is actually good. I'd much rather it be the Shawshank Redemption, for sure. I, I, I agree. Josh. You know, when we when we do these episodes, we always say like, well, if a guy makes such a great movie and never does anything again, you know, he had that home run. This is kind of the quintessential example of that, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. Darabont has had a weird career. So, I mean, as we were saying earlier, he has this connection with Stephen King. So he made this film. He had made a TV movie earlier, but this was his first theatrical film. Stephen King adaptation, obviously a massive success, uh, was able to make another Stephen King adaptation set in a prison. That's a period piece uh, as his next film, The Green Mile, which is not very good. And all of the flaws I feel like that Shawshank avoids, The Green Mile has. It's very sappy, very sentimental. It's extremely long and drawn out. It stars Tom Hanks, who didn't uh, star. Tom Hanks is not Shawshank. a flaw, but everything else I agree with, man. You really nailed it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, and Tom Hanks isn't necessarily a flaw. I'm just saying that, you know, something that Shawshank avoided, he he got, um, yeah, the Green Mile, but but was generally acclaimed and was also nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Uh, he made one non-Stephen King movie, The Majestic with Jim Carrey, which I have never seen, but is also has, I think, a reputation as being kind of overly sentimental. It, it is. And, you know, and Jim Carrey is not at his best when he's playing sentimental, you know? I remember liking that movie. And Martin Landau did, he was nominated, I think, for Best Supporting Actor in it. But I haven't seen it since it came out. But, you know, one thing we got to give Darabont credit for in all of these films is he's really good at, like... um kind of showcasing a period, right? Whether, you know, the Majestic was probably the 50s, if I'm not mistaken, and this goes the 40s to the 60s. Uh, He's really good at, like, really kind of, you know, making these movies feel like they're in the time and place that they were set in. Yeah, this movie is immersive in that way, and you, you do believe it. And it's weirdly like, so the last feature film that Frank Darabont directed uh, from 2007 is another Stephen King adaptation, The Mist. And, you know, we're talking about like the sentimentality of these previous films. The Mist almost feels like, although it was another one of these dream projects that, you know, Darabont had read that story Lord knows how many years ago and held onto the rights because he really, really wanted to make it. But it feels almost like a reaction to people saying that his previous films were too sentimental because it is a horror story. It's a brutal horror story. And one thing that Darabont does in that film that I personally hate, but is and is very polarizing, some people think is brilliant, is he changes the ending 
from the sort of ambiguously hopeful ending that Stephen King writes in the story to just this brutal, awful gut punch of an ending that is one of the darkest film endings like ever. Mm. And to me, it just undermines the the story that there's a moment where you want maybe not sentiment, but a, 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 an element of of slight hope to end the story on. Uh, I'm pretty sure the last word of King's story actually is the word hope. Um, and Darabont just kills you it. Know, but some people love that. If I'm not mistaken, the origin in the story, Shawshank, uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, it ends with red on the bus, you know, in Texas. And we're not sure if he's going to cross the border or not, if he's going to get across. And it leaves it up to interpretation. And in the film, Darabont didn't want that ending, that iconic last shot where you see Andy and Red reuniting and hugging on the beach at Zihuatanejo. Um, But that tested through the roof and really gives us the ending we want as an audience. Yeah, I I agree. And I think the ending of the story where Red is on the bus, I don't think it's meant to make you think that, oh, maybe this is going to like fail. It's simply like it ends on a note of hope for Red. He's he's moving forward to something that actually leaves his future open to possibilities. Um, but And I think it would have been fine, honestly, to end the movie that way. But I do think that that reunion is done well. And another thing is that I think they said they shot more to that where they really yeah. like hammer it home further. And I think it's just the right amount that you know that they've reunited and it is this happy ending, but they're not hitting you over the head with it. And it it, it is great, but I feel like it could have worked without it. Hey, Josh, did you know that? So this movie was shot in Mansfield, Ohio, right? Did you know that there was a group called the Mansfield Reformatory Preservation Society that bought the prison for $1 because it was like condemned and going to be torn down? And they kind of remodeled it, you know, and they have it as a Shawshank kind of tourist attraction. And it makes $16 million a year now. What a deal. What a business deal these guys have made. So you can go and you can see like the pipe that Andy Dufresne escapes through. And you can see all these prison cells and the tree where, you know, uh, Red goes and finds the box that Andy left for him. They have pieces of that there. So to talk about the popularity of Shawshank, that this is such an, uh, uh, um, uh, an emotionally connected movie that it can bring in $16 million a year in tourist revenue. Pretty wild, man. Yeah, it's amazing. And I, I personally don't really like understand the appeal of, of those kinds of tourist attractions, but it definitely speaks to how important this movie is to people, how meaningful it is that they want to travel to Ohio to go to this prison <laughs> and see, you know, Andy Dufresne's prison cell or whatever. It, it is, it is pretty amazing. Um, and, and that, that is, that is a, you know, it's part of that whole legacy of this film as how meaningful it is and how popular it is across this really, really wide spectrum of people. Um, we want to, you know, to go back to Frank Darabont. I mean, one of the major things that he's done later in his career is create the Walking Dead TV series or, you know, adapt it from the the comic books by Robert Kirkman. And he was involved in the first like one and the one and a half seasons. Um, And it seems like since then 
He did have one other uh, TV series that was short-lived called Mob City, which is the last credit he's had in 2013. But it feels like his whole career in the last like, you know, eight or nine years has just been suing AMC <laughs> over The Walking Dead. If you ever read about Frank Darabont, it is only about his never-ending lawsuit over The Walking Dead. Well, I watched those first, you know, seven or eight seasons. And I have to tell you, like, uh, the show got better without Darabon. It was so slow with him, and I didn't care for that. But yeah, I mean, you know what? Let's get back to it, man. Get back to it, my man. Make some movies. Yeah, I'd be curious to see what he would do. Uh, and hell, there's still Stephen King is so prolific. He could just <laughs> right, do another right. Stephen King movie. And, Why not? And Josh, Mob City, of course, uh, stars Edward Burns. So be on the oh, lookout no. for our... Our spinoff podcast, Feel the Burns, where Josh and I go through each of Edward Burns' movies uh, chronologically. Never happening. Never happening. <laughs> um, we talked about a little uh, Morgan Freeman. I mean, this is definitely Morgan Freeman's most iconic role, I think. I mean, we talked about, we did an episode on Driving Miss Daisy, which is, you know, up there, I think, too. But even more so, I think this movie and the amount of parodies and tributes that have been made to the the narration and the style of the narration that Morgan Freeman delivers uh, in this film is is just massive. But I mean, he's had an amazing career, and and this movie I think is a huge contributor to the reputation of him as this actor who brings like gravitas. You know, he played the president in Deep Impact. He played. God in, you know, Bruce Almighty and Evan Almighty. Uh, and, and he has this hilarious trajectory of his character in the uh, Has Fallen movies starring Gerard Butler, where he's the speaker of the house in the first film, and then he's the vice president in the second film. And in the most recent film, he is now the president. So Morgan Freeman has twice played the president of the United States. Uh, but I really, I was looking through the whole long, long list of his credits. I think this is his best work really right here. I can't, I can't argue with you on that. Come on. I'd like to, Yeah, I like arguing with you, but you know, he's, he's got nine, nine movies in development, right. Or in production in some form or another right now. And he's probably somewhere in his eighties. So, you know, this is, let's enjoy it while we still can. Yeah. I mean, he is definitely one of these people who's clearly just going to work and work and work until it's not possible anymore. He's I think 84 now. Uh, he did eventually, he, he was nominated, but didn't win the Oscar for this. He did eventually win an Oscar for Million Dollar Baby. And that's another one, like when we were talking about Paul Giamatti and I thought, you know, what did he win an Oscar for uh, in Cinderella Man? I, I didn't even remember that Morgan Freeman was in Million Dollar Baby. Ugh, million Dollar Baby beat out the aviator. Ugh, one of my, yeah, one and, of and, my and, anger-inducing Oscars. And I agree. I also, I did not like Million Dollar Baby at all. But, but I, you know, you say that to me and I think, oh, right, Hillary Swank, Clint Eastwood. Was Morgan Freeman in that? Oh, I guess he was. Um, <laughs> Tim Robbins, uh, underrated, I think, as as we we've said, he's he kind of bounces back and forth between a, being a character actor and being a leading man in uh, you know in smaller films. He also uh, eventually did win his acting Oscar uh, for his supporting role in Mystic River, and also had a brief career as a director. Made like three movies in the '90s, and then not since then. But he was nominated for the Oscar for best director for Dead Man Walking, uh, which I've never seen. Um, and I, you know, for me, I, I would, again, looking through his, his credits, uh, after this, I would, uh, give a shout out to Michael Winterbottom's sci-fi film code 46, which I think is overall an underrated film. And, and Tim Robbins is the main character in that and does a really good job. So 
Any Tim Robbins favorites, Jason? The Player? Sure. That was, oh, you know, yeah. before this, but is a great film. I yeah. mean, I, I do agree with you, Josh, that um, he is underrated. Um, I mean, Hudsucker Proxy, you mentioned earlier, you know, and I like, I really, I mean, I have to watch it again because, but I liked him in Mystic River. It's that you mentioned internalizing. He's really good at that, you know, really kind of showcasing emotional pain without overdoing it. Right. And Mystic River, I think, has a reputation as being kind of an overwrought film with lots of big acting in it. And I liked it at the time. I wonder if I would like it as much going back to it. But, um, you know, maybe his performance uh, less showy than some of the others in that. He's going to be in a limited series called Wool. That sounds interesting. Men and women live in a giant silo underground with lots of regulations, which they think are supposed to protect them from the toxic and ruined world on the surface. So another one of these. We keep talking about all these kind of dystopian environmental catastrophe limited series, and that one sounds pretty interesting to me. Yeah, it's based on a very popular novel that I I have not read, but I've I've heard about. I think they've been trying to adapt that for a long time. And the other one, another TV series, uh, The Power, a group of teenage girls mysteriously develop a special power that allows them to electrocute people at will. Woohoo! Also based on a novel. Tim Robbins playing one of the teenage girls, of course. He's got range. <laughs> Yeah, he, he also pops up in some weird comedies once in a while. He was in the, the Tenacious D movie. He was in um, Portlandia. He's in Airheads. Am I wrong on that? Stuff. Hey, what about a might be maybe not Airheads, but wasn't he the star of Tapeheads back in the 80s? One of these. Sure. Yeah, Tapeheads is a cult classic, a very strange movie. I recommend seeing it because you really get a feel of the 80s. Yeah, he does have, as you said, maybe he can't play a teenage girl, but he does have a lot of range and maybe that uh, is not uh, is not fully appreciated. Um, there's, you know, a bunch of character actors in this film. Bob Gunton is the one that I who plays the warden here is the one that I always recognize when he shows up in uh, in small parts and other things and has been in a ton of things. And I thought it was interesting. The most recent thing Bob Gunton did was he was the motion capture stand in for Harold Ramis in the new uh, Ghostbusters movie, which is wow. maybe not something to be proud of per se, but is a kind of a weird uh, credit to, to have on your resume. As a character actor, he's always, I mean, this is his like, you know, defining role as well. Yeah, I think so. And he does often play these kind of sniveling bureaucrat types, but he also has range and is someone who is, uh, you know, welcome to see whenever you, uh, whenever you see him pop up in a, in a film. So that was about all I wanted to say on the legacy here. Did you want to mention anything else, Jason? Do you have a James Whitmore movie you would recommend Josh? I don't, you know what? I should have looked up uh, more James Whitmore, but I, I believe that you do. Cause you've asked me this. Was he the one who toured all over in the one man show with um, give him hell, Harry, the Harry Truman biopic one man show. I think they made it, they did make it into a movie, but I've also seen that as like a live play on video. And if that's him, man, you, you, that, that's what I would recommend right there. Yeah. Yeah. That is one of his credits, that one man show as, as Harry Truman. So those things are always weirdly fascinating. Like the, uh, the one man shows about historical figures, like, you know, Mark Twain or something like that. And just, he has a ton of credits and a lot of these movies where he appears, um, it's like, well, I don't necessarily remember him in that film because he probably had a small part but, you know, he's working steadily in lots of great films. I mean, the original Planet of the Apes, that's a great film. So, uh, yeah, I don't remember specifically his character, but I mean, I'll recommend uh, Planet of the Apes right there. Way to go, Josh. But yeah, 
He's, um, no, I mean, he's a great presence in this film. And I think partly because he's someone that maybe doesn't always get a chance to have a big showcase. And here in this film, he gets that one segment where he really shows off his talents in, a, in an amazing way. And you watch it and you think, wow, I want to see more of this guy. I did. And that's why I asked you to recommend a movie from him. All right. I was trying to, the one other thing I was trying to look up is like, have there been prison breaks inspired by the Shawshank Redemption? Has anyone tunneled out of a prison with a rock hammer over the course of decades? And surprisingly, I could not find any stories about that, but maybe because they haven't been caught yet. What a bummer. Maybe they're still working on it. They're yeah. still right. Exactly. If yeah. you started in 1994, you saw this movie and you thought, I'm going to do that. I'm going to get me a rock hammer. Now. You'd still be going. It might happen. They'll finally break out tomorrow. Yeah. Be on the lookout, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so that is the Shawshank Redemption. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out on social media. We are on social media, awesomemovieyear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm Jay Harris Comedy or Jason Harris Comedy on all those socials. Goforjason.com uh, was shot by the warden a long time ago. Uh, JoshBellhadesEverything.com is my site where you can find what I wrote about the Shawshank Redemption 10 years ago because that's how long. That site has it's been around way longer than that. Uh, Josh Bell hates everything also on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can find us on social media at Piecing Pod. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where uh, lots of people voted in this season's episodes and this episode. And can I just say, this has been a really cool, different season. We tried to mix it up. We had a lot of support, a lot of good suggestions. And, you know, when we get to season 15 or 20, we'll probably do something weird again. We're going to go back to our normal format of covering an awesome movie year after this. But this was a fun thing, and we appreciate all the... Uh, participation. Yeah, thank you especially to everyone who voted in this poll uh, with all of the many, many options. <laughs> we appreciate you taking the time to give us some feedback. Uh, and we always love uh, giving our audience a choice in what they can uh, listen to and hear about. So Jason, speaking of the next season, that is coming up in our next episode. What, what are we going to talk about? Josh, this was a year that we were looking at for a long time to cover because of it has a lot of seminal movies, a lot of movies that are recognizable that uh, are not only critically acclaimed, but box office huge hits. We're going back to 1980, Josh. Awesome movie year, season 11, 1980. 1980. And so as always, we're going to start with the box office champion, although we're going to look at number two movie at the box office because number one was Empire Strikes Back. And we've already talked a lot about Star Wars, although maybe we'll get back to that eventually. Oh, and I think going, we're going to get back to it. You know, Empire, you know how I feel about Empire. <laughs> that it strikes back. <laughs> um, but we are going to be talking about nine to five starring Dolly Parton, Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda as our box office champion for 1980. And before that, if you are a member of our Patreon, you can check out a bonus episode from this season. The uh, other audience choice winner was the year 1999. And so we are going to take a movie from that that was from our previous audience choice poll. So, so many complicated audience choice maneuvers going on Lots here. of algorithms, lots of math. It's, we are, we're Andy Dufraining this whole thing. <laughs> 
We are. So uh, one of the movies that almost made our Audience Choice episode last season was American Pie. So Dave, where where can we find this this uh, this whole Patreon situation? The produced by David Rosen Patreon. It is patreon.com slash by David Rosen. And yes, you can find this new awesome movie or episode as well as bonus content from piecing it together and my music career and whatever else I can find to put on this Patreon. And I'll have you know, Josh was magnanimous enough to say if we get five new Patreon subscribers to listen to the American Pie episode, Josh will have sex with a pie. <laughs> Uh, do it. So not true. All of the horrible promises we've made. This is why no one signs up for the Patreon because they don't want to see us uh, debase ourselves in this way. But if you do, please, please sign up for the Patreon. You can listen to that American Pie episode and tune in next time here for nine to five. Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. As the podcast closed, I felt nothing but hope, uncertainty, and... That's all I wanted to feel, not knowing what would be next. Although we know 1980 is next.